Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, thank you very much for your welcome uh, this evening. And uh, we're just going to look at that passage fairly briefly, and you will see in that passage Paul's plans. You'll see that the passage, probably in your Bibles, it's divided this way. It splits in two halves. The first half is what Paul has done, and the second half is what Paul will do. So really, very briefly, what has Paul done? What has he done? Well, he's just written the book of Romans. He says that, well, I mean, you can see he's just in the middle of writing the book of Romans, but he says from verse 14... I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. So what is, what is Paul doing? He's, he's, he's writing to Christians, to a church that are doing all the right stuff. He's, he's written to Christians who are full of goodness, which I think says something about their character who are filled with knowledge, which I think says something about their maturity, and they're able to instruct one another. In other words, this is a good church. The book of Romans doesn't have any of the kind of rebukes that you get in Galatians or in Corinthian letters. And so to a good church, what does Paul do in verse 15? He says, I've written to remind you of stuff you already know. In other words, what has Paul done? He has not assumed the gospel. I don't have the clicker, by the way, but it's a couple of slides on. He's not assumed the gospel. Imagine Paul writing this letter, probably by dictation. Imagine a scribe sitting in the corner, scribbling frantically, trying to keep up after Paul dictates page after page of Romans. Because Romans is a long letter. It's Paul's most detailed letter about sin and and, and sanctification, justification by faith. All these kind of things and what it means to live out the gospel day by day. And and at some point I imagine the scribe closes his laptop and says, Look Paul, these guys know that stuff. They are full of goodness and knowledge. They're able to instruct one another. Why tell them stuff they already know? And remember, parchment's not cheap these days. Why not skip this stuff? But Paul will not assume the gospel. He won't assume people know the cross, that people have got the cross. I don't mean up here, but I mean in here. Because you and I are only five minutes away from denying the gospel. Not in our heads. You could probably sit exams on justification by faith. But in our hearts, we're only five minutes away from denying the gospel. And I know for me that on wet Thursday mornings, my life almost never sings of the gospel. And so Paul writes to mature believers about stuff they already know because Paul will not assume the gospel. And I think that is a key danger for us today. Why is it that some people's love has grown cold? Why do some churches go off the boil? Why do mission societies over time become dulled. Most often it doesn't happen because Christians deny the cross. Well, not at first. But they simply assume that they know the cross and they move on to other stuff. 
They get bored by it. They're looking for more application or five things to do for Jesus before breakfast. And, and, and Christian ministries sometimes, including my own, can talk more about strategies or plans. And we don't deny the cross, but we just assume the cross and it's no longer central. And the danger is that we know the truth, but we don't enjoy the truth. And Joanne and I have seen this over many years in full-time Christian ministry. We've seen people, we've seen mission uh, teams, we've seen churches that have grown dulled. You know, the gospel in here becomes tarnished and dull and slightly boring, and therefore my walk with Jesus becomes tarnished and dull and slightly boring. And why does it happen? It's because we assume the gospel. We no longer enjoy the gospel. But Paul will never ever assume the gospel, even to people who know the gospel, who are mature believers. And that is what I need. That is what you need. And as you pray for mission partners, one of the most important things to pray for them is that they will gaze at Christ every day, that they will enjoy him, that they will rejoice in the cross, that they will not become dulled and bored by by the very joyful life-giving facts of the gospel because that is what they need that is what you need that's what I need every single Monday every single Sunday morning every time I open my Bible it's that I will be one my heart will be one again to Christ and so that's the first thing that Paul does he will not assume the gospel but Paul has been a pioneer and, and basically now he's run out of stuff to do. When you look at verse 19, he says, I have taught all the way in a great arc, all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is in the Balkans. It's kind of top left of Greece. In this great swathe of countries, I've gone everywhere. In verse 20, he says, my mission is to boldly go where no one's gone before. And I've done that. And you wonder, was Paul nuts? There are thousands, millions more non-Christians all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum who haven't yet heard the gospel. I mean, is Paul like one of those Christians or those mission partners or full-time Christian workers like me who just doesn't really get along with other people? You know, was his school report, Paul, big brain, will go far, doesn't play nicely with his friends? Well, no. But Paul was unique. And what he did was he would travel to a new region, normally to the city in that region, and he would plant a church. And it it wouldn't be a Scottish church. It wouldn't be a Northern Irish church. It wouldn't be a church that mostly worries about what's going on inside the building because Paul always planted church planting churches. He planted churches that would ripple out and grow and multiply. And, and, And he planted, and then that church would be the ones that rippled out into the towns and villages around about or when they were down near the river washing the clothes. And those Christians were the ones who rippled out into their workplaces and supermarkets and, and homes and they would spread the aroma of Christ and make the gospel real. And so Paul was a pioneer. He would go to cities in Galatia. He'd throw a, a pebble into that pond and it would ripple out. And he'd go to Ephesus and throw a pebble into that pond and into Corinth. He'd throw a pebble into that and and a a pebble into Philippi. And and what he's saying is there are no more ponds for me in the east. 
There are ripples now going out all across Syria and Cyprus and Turkey and Greece and Macedonia. There are no more ponds for me left. But there are vast swathes of the West where there is nothing rippling out yet. And I'm going to go and start that. That's my ministry. That's my unique calling. And just to be clear, Paul was unique. But he had a burning heart for people who did not yet know Jesus. And that is not unique. That is for all of us. That is what it is for you to know Christ, but to know that other people don't yet. And Paul had an urgency that we quickly forget. That where there are some people who haven't yet heard of Jesus, someone's got to go. And that might be across the street for you. It might be around the planet. So that is what Paul has done in the first half of this passage. He's not assumed the gospel. He's taught it again to Christians through 15 chapters so far. And he's preached it everywhere from Jerusalem to Illyricum. But then from verse 23 onwards, the second half of the passage starts with the words, but now, and he starts to tell us about what he will do. And he says, I'm going on two road trips. I'm going to Jerusalem very briefly, and then I'm off to Spain. Verse 24, I plan to go to Spain, and I'm going to come via Rome first. And he repeats that at the end of verse 28. I'm going to Spain, and I'm coming via you guys. Now, I would love to go to Spain if it weren't on the Amber list. But Trevor and Maggie, why Spain? Paul, why Spain? Well, because if Romans is true, if people are without an excuse, then people in Spain are in terrible danger. And if Romans is true, it doesn't matter how nice Spanish people are, how moral they are, how good they are, how religious they are. It doesn't matter. They still fall short of the glory of God and God's wrath remains on them. And they are in terrible danger. And if Romans is true, if the gospel is true, then, then I cannot hoard Jesus. My church cannot just hug Jesus as if he's a security blanket. I cannot not care for people who haven't yet heard about him. I cannot not love as Jesus loves. And Jesus said, go. And, and Paul in Romans 10 says, how will they hear unless someone goes to them? And if Romans 10 is true, then how beautiful are the feet of those who, who bring good news? It's very, very practical. It's putting one foot in front of the other. Because how else will they know that Jesus loves them so much that he would rather die than be without them? And how will they know that unless someone goes to them and shows them and tells them and explains to them the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how will they know that he died to take the hideous weight of their sin? The shame that they can't forget about things they did decades ago or things they did last week. The sewage that bubbles up in their hearts. The burdens they just cannot get rid of how will they know that that he came to take that to become that unless you tell them how else will they know a loving outpouring overspilling 
gracious, good God who, who gives his spirit without limit to unite us to Christ and to, to, to draw our hearts to call God Abba, Father. How can Paul not go to Spain? Because somebody must. And not just Trevor and Maggie, but who's going to go with them? Who else is going to go to the parts of, of, of Europe or the rest of the world where there, there are people but there's no gospel proclamation yet? And how can you and I not go to our neighbors, our family members, people across the street? Because someone must. And for you and I, it's a thousand times easier than getting on a plane. But of course, what Paul did is what Christians through 2,000 plus years of church history have done. And of course, Paul is only really doing what Jesus did. That is, he came to a people who didn't know him, who might reject him, but who needed him more than deserts need the rain or more than breathing itself. And Jesus came to you because he loves you and he sends you to others because he loves them too. And as I say, for most of us, that just means crossing a room or picking up a phone. But for some, it must also mean going. And Paul says, I'm off, I'm off to Spain. And then lastly, he says what the Romans will do. He says what he has done, what he will do, and you will maybe see in verse 24 that he explains what he thinks the Romans will do. And by the way, he's not asking them, he's telling them. He says in verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. See what he's saying? He says, I'm off to Spain and you're going to help me and I'm going to enjoy my time with you. And in case you missed that, I'm going to say it again in verse 28. I'm going to go to Spain via you. And at the end of verse 32, he says again, I'm going to be refreshed by you. In other words, what are the Romans going to do? They're going to send him. They're going to send Paul. You're going to help me, he says. Now, he doesn't spell out here what that help looks like. But this is what he might have said if he had a bit more space to fill it in. He might have said, help me, because when I go on my missionary journeys anywhere in the east, I've always taken a team with me. I've always taken people with me. So, so help me. As I come to Rome to go on to Spain, maybe some of you guys will come with me to help me in my mission. Or he might have said, help me, because it's costly to do mission. For a while, I worked as a tent maker. I worked as a tent maker to fund my ministry, but when funding came, when friends came, I was able to lay down my tent pegs. Nothing wrong with tent making, but it wasn't what I was called to do. It wasn't what the Lord gave me to do. And when help came, I was able to put that down and preach, which was what I was called to do. Help me. Financially, the verses that we are not going to really look at here are all about a collection for Jerusalem. There's a collection going from one part of God's international church to another part of God's international church. And he might have said, look, if that stirs you, then, then help me. Now, as I said, Paul doesn't say any of those things, but, but this is the kind of help he's received before when he's done his mission in the East. And as he launches out west, don't you think he'll need something like that? So help me. Because you will know that evangelism in Ireland or mission around the world, world mission, 
doesn't just run on good wishes and hot air. And if the gospel of Romans is true, then a big part of mission is immensely practical. And Paul may be at the forefront, but he needs a team with him. He needs a team who will help him. And that is how they become part of his mission. It's how we become part of mission over there. So help me. But he also says at the end of verse 24, I want to enjoy your company. And in verse 32, I expect to be refreshed by you. And that is vital too because Paul was often lonely and he needed encouragement. He writes elsewhere that he was at times crushed and near despair and he needed people, I think, to to say, I'm with you, I've got your back. He needs encouragement. He's looking for refreshment from the Romans. Joanne and I have friends who are mission partners and they receive almost no encouragement from their home church. They're almost never in touch to encourage them. But encouragement, even today, is something that anybody can do. And with technology, you can do it easier than you ever could before. And encouragement makes such a massive difference. I mean, just as a start, the next email, sorry, the next prayer letter you receive into your inbox, click reply and send one sentence to whoever it is. It is so simple, but I can tell you how amazingly encouraging it is to hear back from someone that they've actually read what I wrote and are going to pray. So Paul's looking for help. Send me, help me, and encourage me. But also pray for me. And you see that in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers or brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And the language in this verse is not polite, is it? I urge you, I appeal to you. He is, he is pleading. I'm appealing to you based on Jesus. I, I, If you've received any mercy from Jesus, any grace from him, if you have any benefits from the gospel, then pray for me. And pray because of the love of the Spirit. You know, that first primary gift of the Spirit who gives you love for others. And I think Paul is saying, look, if the Spirit gives you love for me, although you've never yet met me, then pray for me. If the Spirit gives you love for people in Spain, though you will never meet them, then pray for them. I urge you, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, agonize with me, wrestle with me in prayer. Because that's how you join me. That's how you most help me. And that is how we together team up. That is how we are a mission team together to bring the gospel to people who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, in verse 31, he gives them his two immediate prayer needs. And they are rescue from outsiders and acceptance by insiders. He says, pray that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. In other words, pray for my safety and pray for fruitful ministry. 
And again, if you're praying for mission partners, yes, pray that they would not assume the gospel, that they would rejoice in Christ. But, but here are two things to pray for all of them, and that is safety and fruitful ministry. So join me, says Paul. Join my team. Join in prayer because that's where the battle is. That's where the real spiritual battle is. That is the most loving thing you can do, the love of the Spirit. It is a hard-fought battle. It is agony. It is wrestling. It is work. It is mission. So join me. So that's what Paul has done. That's what Paul will do. That's what he's asking the Romans to do. And as I finish, just to pull a few strands together, what do we do? Well, you're not Paul, and I'm not Paul. And mostly, we're like the Roman church, aren't we? We're helpers. We're senders. But in churches across Northern Ireland, there must be those whom God is sending. Those who will go east or west with beautiful feet. And as churches across this island, we need to be proactive in setting apart people and sending them, and sending them well. And that might be you. Just as an example, it might mean not applying for your next job in Belfast, but applying for it in the Republic. I had a coffee with a church leader down there. Many of the churches south of the border are about the size of our home groups in many of our churches. And he was saying, I don't necessarily need full-time Christian workers. I just need normal Christians, tent-making or whatever, but who are part of my church. And so people in your churches, could they consider relocating or applying for a job south of the border instead of in Belfast or in Bangor? And you as a church support them and send them and pray for them and encourage them. Or perhaps, yes, you do need to go to the ends of the earth to to Yemen or Hong Kong or Antigua or Chile or Spain because there are places where people are and the gospel isn't and someone needs to throw a pebble into each of those ponds and start the ripples going out because how will they hear unless someone goes but as I say for most of us for most of Paul's readers for most of church history most of us are senders helpers encouragers those who will give money sacrificially, who will pray sacrificially so that the gospel can be offered to all freely and without charge. We are senders, but of course we are also sent. And even this evening, rippling out from Hambat, as you leave here, as you go out across Bangor and wider afield, we are the ripples going out, taking out the gospel to those round about us. And as we go out, we go out with the same gospel that Paul has preached, the same gospel he proclaims to Christians and to non-Christians, so as to bring more worshippers to the Father. And so that's the normal Christian life. It is missional. We are involved in sending and praying for and, and encouraging and standing with mission through others. There will be people in the new creation who you have never met and will never meet who will thank you that you were part of the team that brought the gospel to Benidorm or to wherever. And that is how we are part of mission over there because we're also part of mission here. We're the ones sending and rippling out where God has placed us. 
And the gospel we rejoice in today, the same gospel that we don't assume, is the one that we proclaim wherever he sends us, wherever he's rooted us today, and wherever he sends us tomorrow. Let me pray. Father, may that be so for your name's sake. Thank you for the privilege we have of being part of your mission, of, of, of holding out the gospel over there as we partner with others, but also over here as you send us out. And at Bangor Worldwide this year, we pray, keep us centered, focused, joyfully on the gospel of your son. And keep us, help us to joyfully hold out that gospel around the world for your glory and for your praise. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.